Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm a former nurse and an academic who spent the last 16 years as an independent medical writer and researcher, creating and evaluating education content for health professionals. If your work involves planning, designing, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. Celebrating its 10th year as the premier online event for CME professionals, CME Palooza will be back in 2023 with its spring and fall events. So mark your calendars for Wednesday, April 12th and Wednesday, October 18th. CME Palooza. It's free, it's fun, and it's just plain fantastic. Storytelling cultivates authentic connections and inspires curiosity in our audiences. Arousing emotions in stories also enhances the learning experience. In today's episode with Ben Riggs, Senior Communications Specialist for Kettering Health and author of Tell Them a Story, we consider how we can use storytelling in the medical education field. Ben describes the importance of understanding the constituent parts of the writing process, and then we discuss understanding the needs of an audience by first defining who they are. Join us. Hello and welcome. This is Write Medicine and I'm your host, Alex Housen. And I'm here today with Ben Riggs, a Senior Communications Specialist at Kettering Health in Ohio, whom I had the pleasure of listening to give a presentation at the recent American Medical Writers Association meeting in Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Ben. Hey, Alex. Good to see you. Yeah, good to, to see you as well. We're going to be talking about storytelling and um, all sorts of good stuff today. But first of all, please, could you tell us who you are and what your current role involves or what you do in your current role? Sure, be happy to. So uh, as mentioned, I'm Ben Riggs, and my day job is Senior Communication Specialist for Kettering Health, which is a health system just outside, based in Dayton, Ohio, which is about an hour north of Cincinnati. We have 14 medical centers or hospitals, another 120 healthcare facilities like urgent cares, outpatient facilities, and then um, roughly 15,000 or so care providers and other staff and employees. And so we're kind of spread, all that is spread throughout Western Ohio, but uh, I spend a lot of my time near Dayton, which is where I live as well. And depending on the day, you know, it changes as it is the case with most writers. But a lot of my role really comes down to providing a sort of quality assurance to a lot of the language that we're trying to produce at a system level. We have different departments and teams that cover their needs throughout the system, but quite a bit of my role has me with department leaders, hospital leaders, other specialists who are thinking about putting words in front of others, whether that's consumers, whether that's patients, other employees. And uh, I've got colleagues whom are just incredibly talented and can run circles around me from a strategy perspective. And so I, the value I try to bring to those conversations in terms of quality assurance is trying to come alongside and 
supplement the craft conversation with the strategic conversation. So trying to think about the level of writing decisions, word choices, sentences, thinking about audience. How does that change how we're going to go about communicating something, the context we're in situationally? So a lot of moving parts, but I think that's where our team approach really works because I commit my mental energy to my world of writing craft and method. And then I've got colleagues who are coming alongside thinking about it more at the strategic level and then by our powers combined, trying to communicate effectively. I know by talking to you and uh, seeing you present at Amois, how much you love the craft of writing. How did you find your way into writing as a way to you know, earn a living? That's a great question. The probably the straightest line through to answering it is the sort of background of my life. I can look back and tell that there was sort of this gravitational pull that writing always had. And as I grew up and grew into that, I think certain teachers, educators, mentors, especially my mom, who was also a teacher. So I think she had professionally the eye for trying to inspire young people with the gifts they're presenting or the things they're interested in. And so so all that combined, there was this sort of routine encouragement throughout the years to kind of be thinking about writing or a teacher saying maybe, you know, we didn't quite follow through on arguing your point well in your paper, but I love how you wrote it. And so that kind of cloud of witnesses almost in, in the background of my story came to a head in college when I had a professor who said something similar about a paper and her follow-up was to pick up Stephen King's really only instructional book that he's ever written called On Writing. And so I found that, funny enough, in a bookstore on campus. I had gone to The Ohio State University for my undergraduate and and so I found it in, the, in a campus bookstore and it was shoved between two smaller books that looked newer Certainly, the covers were a little bit more aesthetically pleasing, but they were both boasting these kind of titles of write a book in a week or, you know, write a novel in a day. And I just remember thinking, you know, how long did it take those authors to write those books? But yeah, I found, found on writing in that context and so pulled it off the shelf. And so that, that book really, I think, got me thinking about craft and about writing in the sense of it was the first time I had someone who through story, through his own life, a narrative about his own coming to terms with who he was as a writer, providing advice at the level of word choice and word order, and just kind of getting a glimpse into his life as a writer and making a living doing it. And so I'd say that that book inspired me in two ways. It sort of inspired me to think, oh, I could actually make a living, maybe not as a novelist, but in caring about words and uh, and doing that on behalf of other people and also caring about the elements of writing and being able to actually come alongside other writers. And so fast forward the tape, I get into freelancing and editing and started a kind of one one man editing and writing roadshow company called Riggs Writing and that ended up acquired by another company and I worked with some great colleagues there. So it just kind of all was born out of this advice to pick up Stephen King's on writing and then kind of followed his his advice, not quite to the T, but pretty close. And so 
it was after about a decade of freelancing that I ended up then taking a role here at Kettering Health. So a lot of great storytelling there in your description of how you got into writing. Excuse me. And I want you to pause for a moment and flag up some of your word choices. Mm. Gravitational pool, clouds of witnesses, and care. You use the word care a few times, caring about the words, caring about the message, mm. caring about the writing for other people. And that fits very much with you know, where you are now in terms of providing communications or taking care of communications in a health system where other mm. people are taking care of patients. So I just wanted to kind of flag that up because there's some beautiful kind of poetry there. When you are in that process of taking care of words and taking mm -hmm. care of messages, how do you think about the mechanics of storytelling for mm -hmm. the kind of audiences that you're working with? And, and maybe, maybe we, could, we could start the answer to that question by first talking about who those audiences are. Yeah, I'm happy to. You use the word process, and I think that's going to be a word that will likely come up quite a bit because in my time as a writer and working with other writers, I've come to find that there really are no, much like in life, there are no silver bullets within the world of writing. But if there were any, or at least ones that came close, I would say understanding the constituent parts of the writing process and understanding and knowing what to expect with each of those parts of the process. And then a little bit more granular, but is to focus on verb usage. So those are kind of two things I'm often trumpeting to other writers. You know, if I have limited time with them, here are the two things I'm going to make a big deal about in their, in their company. But yeah, so the audience question is interesting. And here at Kettering Health, there's a few different ways that we're thinking about it. And we're thinking about our audience perhaps from an employee perspective, we're thinking about our audiences by way of, are they leaders within our system? Are they community members that we're already in the midst of and we've already established access to care, spaces of care within those, those areas? Or are the audiences that we're sort of trying to reach where maybe we don't have a physical presence yet, but we're trying to create maybe a digital one or, or at least a presence in, in the minds of others by way of creating some awareness. So there's a lot of ways to to conceive of who the audience is that, that we're trying to reach. But I think to your point, when I think in asking the question, when we determine our audience, that's the primary question because then that leads us to trying to figure out then, okay, what are the needs of these audience members that then we are trying to meet with how we're communicating to them? And and when you're in that process of determining need, so, you know, one of the things I hear a lot in, so for instance, uh, the user experience space, or not so much the user experience, I mean, you know, marketing, communications space, there's this idea that, you know, we can, we can do user experience research, we can create an avatar, we can build messages and communication around that avatar. But in health writing and medical writing, I think there's a different process at play. And so I'm wondering mm -hmm. how that works in your in your context, how you you use the word granular, how you get that granular sense of what the audience needs are. Yeah, that's a tremendous question. The first way of approaching that is perhaps an indirect answer to your question, but 
something that is important to me is that while certain situational needs shift between or among audiences in their context, you know, I think that there are certain questions that will follow you from context to context. What's, you know, what's the average reading level that we're trying to reach? Where are people encountering content? Is it going to be on their phones? Is it going to be when they're walking through a door or into a lobby? Is it going to be at a certain time of day? You know, I think, in, and that's where this wild world, sometimes Orwellian world of algorithms comes in that, you know, I would be outside of my lane to speak authoritatively about. So as a writer, what I've learned is that while it's important to understand what the situational needs are, I think from a reading comprehension level, the types of questions someone's going to maybe likely be asking if if they're in one part of a community, perhaps that is underserved, under-resourced versus another community that might have more access points to healthcare and sort of keeping that all in mind, I like to go toward sort of the baseline and ask questions about what are sort of those, to use a Latin phrase, a priori or before the fact, before the fact needs that by and large, any human reader is going to have that those situational needs uh, sort of hover above or find a foundation on top of. And at the end of the day, I think those needs are that most human readers want to have something that's clear. No one likes noise. No one likes to read something that's confusing and commit a lot of brain calories to deciphering something, especially in emergent situations or maybe where there's already a lot of confusion and they're desperately needing some clarity. I think another need is simplicity. And I think this is true no matter your reading level. Clutter exists at every level of language, whether uh, you're an academic or whether you are a person working hard in a factory to make a living and you need instructions quickly and you have a lot going on yourself, I think. And every level between, everyone needs simplicity. Everyone needs a communicator who is going to care about making sure that there's the right words are put in the right order for that person. Brevity to say the least. You know, I think those things start to come together to create clarity, but you know, brevity in terms of has has a writer done the hard work of divorcing themselves from the words they've put on the page and that they've initially deemed is in the right order and is comprehensible? Are are they going to be willing to go back to that language and ask the question, what here is unnecessary? Perhaps what could be made more simple? And then lastly, I think humanity. And I think humanity takes us into the realm of voice, which we can talk about at some point if you'd like. But, you know, I think in most cases, trying to make sure that you're not just communicating accurately, which is any writer's number one goal, I would say. But as you move through processes of verification to ensure that what you're communicating is accurate, as you move through processes of selection that I think move you toward greater clarity. I think there needs to be a process in which you, you're you asking yourself, is the way or how I'm communicating this appropriate? Not just the subject matter and what's being communicated, but is how I'm communicating it consistent or aligned with the needs of of the reader? 
So I think, and those four words I would be remiss to not mention, I believe, come from William Zinsser in his book on writing well. I think he packages those together, brevity, mm-hmm. simplicity, clarity, humanity, and sort of the old-fashioned, if it's not broken, don't fix it. I see those very much as sort of those a priori needs that readers have. And we'll make sure to include a link in the show notes to at least two of William Zinsner's book, as well as your own book, because you've oh, written a book, you. Tell Them a Story, which kind of parses out some of this process in a really accessible mm. way, I think. You mentioned a few things. Well, there's so much rich stuff, actually, in what you just said that I want to dig into a little bit. One is about confusion. You talked about voice and or confusion and clutter. So let's stick with those two things for now, because I think that one of the things, you know, part of the reason we're having this conversation is we kind of got into how all of the things that you're talking about relates to writing for clinical audiences mm-hmm. and how applicable what you're talking about is for that process of, of writing for clinical audiences, specifically in the context of continuing medical education or continuing mm-hmm. healthcare education. And I think that one of the things that I see in writing and I hear from writers who work in this space is how challenging it can be to remove the clutter, mm-hmm. to avoid the confusion, because the temptation is to stuff content filled with the accurate mm-hmm. details, but that nonetheless end up being challenging for, for the reader because there's just so much stuff. And and we know that, you know, clinicians are they're reading on the hop too. They're reading on their phones. They're reading at the point of care. They're they're trying to kind of access their education in in ways and formats that are, you know, demand brevity and mm-hmm. and simplicity and the things that you you talked about. So so here's my question: <laughs> What kind of things contribute to confusion and clutter in writing in health communications? Mm. And and we're going to extrapolate to medical writing. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. So I think clutter will never lead to clarity. I think we can probably, that's a safe bet to say. And so the the other way of saying that is I think where there's confusion on behalf of the reader, that means that there's some unmet expectations that, that the reader had for whatever they're reading and what they needed from it. And by and large, that those unmet expectations are probably born out of some some confusion. And to kind of keep playing law and order here down to where the culprit is, <laughs> that confusion typically, not all the time, but you know, I think clutter is a part of those usual suspects that can very much lead to confusion in, in readers. I think it's important for writers of any stripe to remember that accuracy doesn't require exhaustiveness. One of the hardest things about writing is determining what your focus is unvarnished and to make sure, you know, kind of the main idea that you want to communicate by the end of a piece, which requires sort of dutiful selection to be able to ask yourself, okay, I'm not going to cover everything in, in this piece of writing related to whatever it is. So what is it that I need to cover? What are the, in storytelling terms, this is the theme. And all the sorts of sub-themes that would help buttress or support their reader to encounter that theme throughout a piece of writing. But then for anything outside of story, kind of what I, I'll refer to as kind of uh, report writing. Report writing being 
sort of the opposite of narrative like writing anything that is literary and using quite a bit of metaphor and creating scenes and involving characters right that's all narrative on the opposite side we have report writing and, and and even some of the organizational strategies that are different where you know narrative wants to lead more to a payoff at the end where in a lot of report writing we need to tell the reader pretty early on what's newsworthy or what's important sort of built around the conventional inverted pyramid but to that end i see a lot of people with commitment to being accurate thinking that that also means they have to be exhaustive that in order to say anything they have to say everything about it or it won't be accurate um i think this this happens a lot with journalists who want to be objective in the sense of showing multiple sides of how an event impacted a town or something or a constituency you know the stakeholders involved but as you as you can imagine if you think about that yourself and you start to ask okay well who's who's impacted by this school board ruling you can really follow that thread in a lot of direction and can find yourself busied and overcommitted to trying to communicate on behalf of all of these stakeholders all these people affected and so I, I think that's true with when you're writing about something that's complicated within the world of medical writing the idea that in order to be accurate I have to I have to be exhaustive and so I think looking at writing then as in the writing process as not just a means of how can I in a clever way put everything onto the page to get it all there and make it seem as if it's going to be preeminently readable as opposed to what should likely happen, which is how can I take this body of ideas that I do need to communicate and work through a process of selection? I think it was John McPhee or Donald Murray who said that the basis of the process of, of revision or rewriting is is not the act of compression, it's the act of selection. And so I think that and when it comes into clutter, to circle back to this wagon here, a lot of clutter is the result of writers thinking, I've got to take all my ideas that I have deemed important and put on the page. And, and a lot of writers can legitimately see the connection points between different ideas. And then they, so they sort of get baptized during the first draft process, if I can use that phrase. And then when it goes to revision, a lot of writers take up the mantle of, okay, how do I just play cups now with the ideas? It's about rearranging and trying to figure out how to compress all these ideas even further together, because they're probably also finding out that they're over word count, or there's just too many words here at all, when really, as opposed to com compressing all that language and all of those ideas together, you know, kind of imagine a, the task is to take the amount from a large checked bag and, you know, put it into your personal item, right? I think a lot of people are like, well, how do I take everything from a checked bag and get it into this little backpack when the effective question is, okay, well, what can I leave behind and what do I need? And then what can I put in this little you know, backpack and take it on with me? I think that's the effective process is the right. process of selection. That's your, what's your capsule wardrobe? Right, exactly. Yes. Right. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. 
This episode of Right Medicine is brought to you by Right CME Pro, a membership-driven community that provides skills, scaffolding and support for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Right CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects, group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME and more. Write CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche or niche, if that's how you say it. See the show notes for more details. No, that's so that's so that's so interesting because I think that, you know, one of the things that I hear from a lot of medical writers and science writers too, and there's an interesting debate about what the difference between these two things is this idea that how can I curb the research process and the mm. writing process? Because there's just so much to write about. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing you say is and you said it at least twice, but I'm going to say it one more time just for just for effect. You know, it's not a process of compression, stuffing everything that you know into this one piece of writing. Mm-hmm. It's it's a process of selection so that you are kind of carefully curating the ideas right. and the concepts and the details that need to be in a particular piece. But that does sort of imply that there's this. I mean, one of the ways I think I've always approached writing is, you know, and I've heard other writers talk about this as well, you know, where we cast a wide net at the beginning of the process. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, there's a lot of material that now, because I've been doing it for a long time, I know is going to be extraneous, but it's part of my process. I didn't know that when I began, I thought, okay, it's a wide net, everything needs to be in there. Mm -hmm. Now I realize, yeah, some things are going to, you know, not be in the final the final piece of content. And often, and I wonder if, if this is your experience too, and I can't remember if this is something that we talked about before, but often it's the the golden phrase or the thing that I'm really attached to early on in the process that I think that's great. I love that. That's really got to be in the final piece. And that's the thing that goes because yes. it doesn't serve the story. Mm-hmm. And so having that willingness to your point about selection, having that willingness to let go is also a really important part of that of that process because you have to, you know, and some people would say, argue that's, you know, you have to acknowledge your ego in the process and let go mm-hmm. of the things that feed your ego versus the things that actually serve, you know, the writing that you're that you're doing. And to that, and I, I do want to come to voice, but to that point about managing the process of you know, doing the research, getting everything on the page, figuring out what really needs to be there. Do you mm. recommend or have particularly strong opinions about tools? I know that there's a lot of, there seems to be a lot of debate and discussion in kind of writing and productivity and creative mm. worlds at the moment around productivity tools. Mm. And one of those conversations is about note-taking tools. And there just seems to have been, you know, a massive kind of increase in the number of of note-taking tools. So things like Obsidian and Notion Mm. and Evernote. Mm -hmm. And do you have strong opinions about these things on their utility for writers? Or (laughs) what's your take on those things? That's a great question. And I think you're the first person to ask me it. So I'll admit what you're getting here will be 
a little bit of my thinking about it aloud because I admittedly and transparently love Evernote. I have it on my phone and my computer. And I've used it forever. <laughs> it's I, I, I actually have had it for quite a bit. And so it's always fun to go look back and, and see the, the sorts of things that I was collecting years ago. But in your mind garden. <laughs> yes, yes, precisely mind garden. I is that something we talked about before? I I can't remember. Okay. I know it's so, something yeah, I don't know. <laughs> if we hadn't talked about it, it made me think about the this might be a categorical kind of aside here, but I, I promise to get us back to the conversation. That's but okay. of, of the it. uh Tolkien's idea of the leaf mold. Oh no, I don't know that. I, I'm I'm not a Tolkien fan. Okay, well, so uh, <laughs> so no, we haven't had that conversation. Oh <laughs> uh, no, okay, that, that's fair enough. That yeah, I guess we we wouldn't have. So so Tolkien, famously known for being the author of The Lord of the Rings, creator of Middle Earth, and just this burgeoning universe now that that we've all inherited of of adventure and, and hobbits. But he had a phrase about the beginning of the writing process. Uh, I don't know if he uses that phrase, but at least it's how I've adopted it. And he, he calls it that he would write from the leaf mold of his mind that over time, well before apps and Evernote and these you know other tools, he as a writer took note of what was around him, the things that gave him pleasure, the things that seemed interesting to him, took note of the landscape of literature and you know maybe where things were were at, at the time where there's certain stories missing from certain you know canons and things like that and just probably i think too he took notice of himself and just kind of what he was thinking about and daydreaming about and it was he called all these ideas and little half ideas together and what he talked about is is that it would create this leaf mold now the leaf mold and there are plenty right now here in Ohio because of our transition from fall to winter. But the leaf mold is that, that sort of gross sludge-like thing that is on the curb after the leaves have fallen and we've gotten some rain and some snow and it's just kind of all collected there and it's churned by tires and life happening. And, you know, don't want, I don't have to keep describing it, I'm sure, but but essentially I think the idea is it's it's this very unesthetically pleasing place where just churning ideas happen and you're just sitting with them and then you're and you're letting them kind of take life on their own and become another idea that you might run with and so that's where to answer the question and i, I just love the idea of the leaf mold other writers talk about you know the crock pot of the mind or the mind garden right. and things like that i think those are all good but just and perhaps it's because I'm a little nostalgic about the Midwest that this whole idea of the leaf mold stands out to me. But I think coming up with with ideas or trying to determine what's what's a good idea to to write about and how to write about it, whether you're literary writer or whether you're in the realm of nonfiction, I think the process of coming up with good ideas is something that's often overlooked. I think we just kind of assume that that's a quick thing that happens. And it's not, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you want to qualify certain ideas and certain, you know, certain topics before you, be, you begin writing on them. So when it comes to tools like Evernote, which I'll speak to because I use it quite a bit, you know, that's, I really do, it's like the reporter notebook that I can't have with me all the time. And just because of its utility between screenshots and being able to 
voice memos and just kind of all these things I can put in in one place, have them be secure. And I think there's the assurance that that they're there. You know, I don't I, I don't know too much about the tech world to speak intelligibly about it, but I just appreciate that when I'm out and about, you know, walking my dog, Louie, which is, you know, I do a lot of thinking on those walks. Um, I've even written a whole essay about taking him for a walk. And that that essay was sort of born out of some ideas I had and some turns of phrase, and I put them right into my Evernote. And they just kind of camped out there for a while, and then I returned to them. And it was nice then to be able to turn to my laptop, where I've got a little bit more autonomy and can sit down with those ideas and start to create. So I'm a fan of them. The only footnote that I'll add, so that this isn't an absurdly long answer to that question, is whatever tool someone uses to gather ideas, to do research, I think there's a certain amount of over-reporting that is necessary. I tell writers, particularly when it comes to writing narrative, that the necessity of reporting to writing is that of the apple seed to the apple. You obviously can't have the latter without the former. But the extent to which you report is something like an orchard's worth of apples and apple trees to just fill one one bushel. So I think those tools are great and can help the quality of over of over reporting not feel so intimidating because then, you know, I've got friends who are pretty old school. They still use the reporter notebook. I do at times. Mm. It can be hard to take that pile of paper and sit down with it and and make sense of it. But I do know that with the reporter notebook, you know, just kind of specifically calling these out, they're finite, right? They have covers, and so at some point you're you're going to finish them, and then you need to sit down with the material. And that would be maybe the only word of caution I would have for someone using more digital spaces to collect their research or their thoughts or ideas is it's a little harder to have the cue that, okay, I need to sit down with this and start to really figure out what I have. And it's that moment of when do I stop that I think, you know, makes it really challenging for a lot of medical writers in particular, because I think Mm. they get, we get stuck in reporting mode Uh, as it were. And and in medical education, I think, you know, one of the kind of interesting questions for me is always, what's the balance between sort of reporting and and storytelling? Because in medical education, you are looking for transformation. It's not just, you know, a data dump or here's the information. It's here's what you need to do with the information in order to change your thinking or your practice or, you know, change your performance uh, in some cases. There's a lot of really interesting stuff that I hadn't heard about the leaf molds before, but of course, leaf mold is organic. And I love that image of mm-hmm. things kind of sprouting and growing from that yes. sort of mm-hmm. messy, organic place. And it also reminds me of, you know, the commonplace book. Have you, you come across? I don't think I have. So the commonplace book is, is a kind of centuries old. I have one somewhere. They're tiny books, but they're the idea was exactly that, that you would I, I think they may even have a sort of medieval origin, but don't quote me on that. But the idea is exactly that, that you have this place to collect mm. the things that interest you and that move you, inspire you, you know, all of those yeah. things. But uh you know we'll, we'll we'll go with Leaf Mold for the, yeah, the mind. Yeah, or or uh Donald Murray, who was a famous writing coach and columnist for the Boston Globe. He had his famous day books, which right. 
he would keep on him, whether they were, you know, half sentences, kind of incomplete thoughts or drawings that he had, but sounds like a similar idea. But yeah, he, he made the day book popular in that way. So two things, I guess. One is I do, I do want to kind of dig into this question of, you know, from your perspective in, you know, health communications generally, what do you see as the balance between reporting and storytelling? If your audience is a clinical audience, mm, is that something mm. that you kind of, that exercises you? Yes, that's a great question. So I think from a, you know, I think the kind of reporting you do is born from the type of writing that you know you need to create. I think in general, whether I'm writing perhaps maybe a certain type of article for consumers to help them understand a certain therapy, or if we have like an awareness week that we're trying to draw attention to, to help connect people to a service line and the therapies they offer. If I'm writing about that, you know, a lot of my reporting is going to include research and connecting with subject matter experts, of course. And I know already that my commitments to reporting are essentially to answer the question, you know, the who, what, when, where, why, how question. When I'm reporting for something like narrative, I'm still trying to get a hold of the facts that are going to answer those questions, but I'm also trying to get a hold of the things of life and the things of the human experience that are going to help me take my answer for who and turn it into more like a character and to take the facts that are going to help me answer what and turn it more into action or a problem, where into setting, why into agency or motive. And a lot of that really comes down to, you know, asking the question, sort of, what does the audience need in this moment? You know, if they need to know the information quickly, uh, with some simplicity and clarity and brevity and humanity, then that'll drive my reporting to, you know, again, more of the sort of standard five W's and H of reporting and, 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 and what's going to allow for fairness too in all of that. And the way that I'm going to write it then is going to be shaped by what I've reported, you know, I'm going to try to put the most information, the most important information toward the top and then organize it so that there are supporting details. And if there are additional thoughts and little off ramps to a little conversation here or there, making sure those happen accordingly, but there's less of that build to the ending where in most cases with certain, you know, pieces like this that are more Louis Rosenblatt who was a writer, professor, uh, linguist, calls this efferent writing. Kind of the idea comes from the Latin phrase to mean take away. She has a book called The Reader, the Text, the Poem. You did mention that I would recommend to folks. And so when I'm writing with that more efferent approach, where it's just to convey information to a reader and and sort of call it a day, the idea is that by the time a reader hits the ending, there's a little bit of a repeat of everything that they've read, but with a certain type of simplicity and also complexity that would not have benefited them had they not been through through the whole piece from top through toward the bottom yet. But where then if I'm I'm doing more narrative writing, you know, obviously my approach might be different to it, where I can create a little bit more mystery and questions at the beginning with a certain type of complexity about a certain event that happened to a patient. And it's going to be those questions that drive their reader to engage further with, with the text. So, so how I report 
is dramatically shaped by what I've decided I need to write or should be writing. And it really comes down to, do readers need the information quickly, succinctly? Is it a piece where I can commit more real estate on the page to explaining what they just read in the lead that's really important? Or if they don't need the main point right away, and I've got some of the elements of a good story, like a character and a problem and good scenes and drama, the narrative might be best to to do that. Now to your question about clinical audiences, you know, I think by and large, a lot of the writing for clinical audiences is going to go more of the efferent route, you know, kind of the, the more shaping things to convey information clearly and succinctly and cogently. But I'm a big believer that everyone loves a good story. I'm a big believer that storytelling in many ways accomplishes certain goals within the world of communication that sort of information-heavy effort writing just can't accomplish or it accomplishes very differently to if you want to convey a certain event that happened and a certain piece of technology that maybe is now a part of a health facility and, and what it could mean for patients and care providers and their time and recovery time and everyone's time. You could write more of a press release-like approach for that or an explanation article. So if we're trying to capture the benefits of a new piece of surgical tech and what it means for patient populations and outcomes, what it means for care providers and their time, what they need to know in order to use it appropriately, stating the obvious, that's, that's going to be much more of a typical piece of effort writing where there's a lot of explanation, there's probably some diagrams, there's data. You know, we're still trying to communicate it all clearly and effectively, but there's probably no sign of a story there. there there's not going to be much of an illusion or a scene or a metaphor, and that's appropriate. And even to the level of voice coming off the page, we you know, probably don't want this real boisterous personality getting in the way of, of what the reader needs to connect with. But if we have a chance to put the the clinician in the patient's shoes, so to speak, and really not just connect, but really begin to care about what are the benefits of this piece of innovative technology within a service line, there's an opportunity for storytelling there that's possible that is not possible with sort of an efferent approach to writing. And so since I've gone ahead and mentioned efferent, I'll go ahead and mention the uh, counterpart, which is Louise Rosenblatt refers to as aesthetic writing. So it's the writing choices that convey information, no less, but are doing it in a different way. But I think if you want to put a clinician in a patient's shoes, they experience something without actually having to experience it themselves. Writing a good story with a few words or a lot of words is going to be much more effective than trying just to appeal to the intellectual component or part of a clinician with with a more information heavy piece of writing. And you use that word care again. And I think mm -hmm. in all of the writing that we do, whether it's for a clinical or patient or consumer or other kinds of audiences, we're trying to get the reader to care about what's yes. on the page so that they'll they'll take some kind of action or they'll think differently or they'll feel differently and this will motivate them to take some other kind of action. 
If you're like me and see yourself as a lifelong learner who loves connection with other CME professionals, come and check out what Right Medicine offers in terms of community and courses. And I'd love to hear from you what you're interested in learning more about on the podcast. And if you like the podcast or a particular episode, consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or share with your colleagues and peers. There's a link in the show notes to help you do all of these things. See you next time.